Our scripture uh, this morning is from Genesis chapter 3. It will be beginning in verse 14. Uh, Hear now the word of the true and the living God. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Good morning. Let's open with prayer. Heavenly Father, we just come to you, Lord. Lord, we come to you humbly, Lord, for this, this special day that we have come to hear your word, that we have come to uh, corporately, dear Father, to worship, Lord, and to praise you. Lord, that we've come to partake of communion together, Lord. And Lord, we have come to remember, Lord, the resurrection, Lord, the fact that our Savior has risen. Lord, I ask that you would bless your people. Lord, I ask that you would give me utterance, dear Father. And all these things we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I don't know what it takes normally to get all three of us in ties in the same day. Um, I will say my wife bought this for me. My lovely wife bought this for me last week or so, and I thought it would be a fitting day to wear this particular tie. It looks kind of springy to me, don't y'all? Uh, she said it looks like Clemson, so I, I, that, that works for me as well, you know, kind of the Clemson colors. I mean, my brother will probably appreciate that. <laughs> um, and I know that's probably, because we come here this morning, you know, Trey opened up with scripture about the the, raisins, the risen Savior and, and all these sort of things. Of course, we hear Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. And yes, I'll say Easter Sunday because, you know, sometimes we felt, you know, a pressure not to use that word anymore because we know where it comes from, right? The first Ishtar, a, a goddess. But then I remember, and as the years go, I remember more and more every year it, it, it that <laughs> as the Lord says that he will remain to every enemy is put under his footstool, right? Every enemy is put under his footstool. And when I think about that, I consider the name Easter Ishtar, that unless we remind you, no one even knows where it comes from. When we think of Easter, what do we think of? The risen Savior, right? So praise God for that and praise God for what he is doing in, in, in our world and our earth today. And... uh 
But the scripture I know is kind of odd to open with for for uh, Easter morning or for Resurrection Sunday, whatever you prefer. And uh, it's because I'm having a little bit of a different approach to our message this morning. And uh, you know, like last Sunday, you know, it, it wasn't entirely an expository type message where we just take scripture and we just try to wring out everything we can and go verse by verse. You know, but it was a very bullet pointed type of thing. I went through facts and I went through all these different things to try to walk you through certain parts of Scripture and tie some things together. and uh, But today we're going to be looking at, really, uh, a narrative type of message. Um, won't be complete departure from like what I did last Sunday, but but a little different. And uh, so, of course, in this particular case, the narrative is is the resurrection. And yes, we're starting in Genesis, which seems a little bit odd, I'm sure, but in this narrative, we're trying to tell a story, right? We're trying to tell a story, and we're trying to to uh, bring out very specific truths and very specific ideas. Narratives are a funny thing since they focus on storytelling aspect and can tend to focus on the specific themes on certain truths. Nothing wrong with that, of course, as long as we take the time to understand more. And here's what I want you to... This, this is where I need your imaginations this morning a little bit, right? This is where I need you to just kind of stretch a little bit and just think about this some. Because consider the Scriptures, the whole of, of Scripture, as a symphony. Played by a grand orchestra, written and conducted by the greatest composer. Now imagine through the whole piece as it is played with a multitude of instruments and chords and notes all played in concert and all in key and all together in harmony. Now, when I talk about a symphony, some of you are probably hearing Bach in your head, some of you hearing Beethoven, some of you may be hearing Mozart, who knows what you're thinking about, what, what, what that kind of... But you can kind of see what I mean. When you think about a grand orchestra, man, all the different instruments that you see in an orchestra, you know, the cymbals and, and, and the drums and all the string instruments and all these different things, all of these instruments playing together, right? All, all of them to create this grand music, the symphony that we hear. And it's a beautiful thing. And consider the percussions, the woodwinds, the brass, the stringed instruments, and even the clang and crash of the cymbals. Often when we tell a story or present a narrative, we focus on a specific group of instruments, right? You hear what I'm saying about this? And sometimes just a specific instrument, or even just a certain chord, or even right down to a very specific note. So sometimes we may want to hear just, just a certain part of the orchestra, and we, we drown out all the other instruments, and we're just going to hear the flute, or maybe the clarinet. And so this can be good and necessary as we relate these things to very specific truths and stories, and narratives within Scripture. But if we, but when and if we spend too much time there, that is on that very specific note, or that very specific chord, and maybe just even that very specific instrument, then we start to forget the clarinet over the flute. Or the rhythm of the drums, or the drone of the cello. And how about the whine of the violin, or the fiddle, if you're, if you're so inclined. Um, and as it is with the resurrection. There's a lot of notes, there's a lot of, of aspects, a lot of things being played throughout the, the narrative and the story of the resurrection. When we go from, from Genesis all the way to the maps, there are so many different things to be heard. 
but we sometimes tend to focus in on very specific notes, right? Not that those notes are wrong, not that those things are, are, aren't, aren't accurate, but we need to hear more. So we often hear the note playing that says, Christ died and arose from the dead for me. That is to say, we tell someone Christ specifically died and arose to save you. So is it right to say that Christ died, in fact, did in fact die and rose again on the third day, and by doing so saved me, and by doing so purchased my soul and reconciled me to the Lord? Is it good and a right thing to say and know this was accomplished by the death and resurrection of our Savior? Of course it's good. But that is, in fact, just one of the many notes and many chords played by one of many instruments. As, as I said, it is good to do this from time to time and make sure we silence the other notes just for a moment to make sure we hear that one or any other with certain clarity. But imagine. Imagine being the composer, the person who wrote the symphony wrote all the parts for all the instruments and all these things together to be played and heard in concert with one another in perfect harmony. Imagine being that composer of this symphony just for a moment or the conductor, even the second seat violinist. Imagine all there is to be heard and all there is to be understood through this, this symphony. But I tell you, the orchestra, but you tell the orchestra, I'm sorry. No. I only want to hear the cello, or only want to hear the bassoon. I only want to hear that part that talks about me. That's the only note I want to hear. I want to hear that note. We might could even call it the me note. That was cheesy, I know, I'm sorry. That could be one of those cheesy billboard signs outside the church, and I repent for that. I'm sorry. But, but I was kind of proud I thought of that. <laughs> Why? <clears throat> Excuse me. Excuse me, folks. So is it wrong? Is it wrong to speak of the work of the gospel from the view point of the individual. And we've already said, said and stated fundamentally that, that no, it's not. It's, it's not wrong because Scripture does that. We'll even read Scripture later today where we're going to talk about that the Lord died and was risen to save you and to save me. It's a right thing to say those things. It's the right thing to focus and understand those things. But when we only hear those things, we begin to lose the rest of the orchestra. We begin to lose the rest of the symphony that the great composer, if you will, intends for us to hear through all of this. So is it wrong to speak in the work of the gospel with the viewpoint of the individual? We've already said no. But consider the composer. Do you think he wants you to hear all of his work, and in this case, all of his truth? Let me ask you this. Can a partial truth be wrong? I would suggest that a truth spoken partially but represented and characterized as the totality of truth, it's not much different than a lie. 
Let me give you an example. If we were to speak of God's grace and only speak of God's grace and only speak of God's love, that's all we talk about. And we talk about that. That's all God is. And we, we see that today in the culture, right? We see that where, where uh, uh, certain things are accepted in churches that ought not be there that the Scripture clearly speaks against. All kinds of immoralities. And how is it justified? Because, well, God is love, which is a true statement. But it's spoken as partial truth because they also forget and also decline to talk about God's holiness and God's righteousness and all these other aspects. So a truth spoken in partiality but represented as the totality of truth is pretty well a bunch of lie. So we must understand more. We must see the full, hear the full symphony. We must hear all the chords and all the instruments being played throughout the symphony. We're going to try to walk through some of that this morning. Okay? I hope you can follow me with all of this. That's why we don't often do narrative preaching, and we're careful with it when we do, as of this morning. That is why we normally focus on expository, because it tends to keep us from ignoring the other instruments playing throughout the narrative of Scripture. I hope that analogy is, is, is working for you guys. As mentioned today, we'll talk about the narrative of resurrection and surely a fitting on this Lord's Day. So we'll start in Genesis 1, 24 through 31. We're going to read this through fairly quickly. Then the Lord said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and every that, everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky, to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Well, I want you to understand here what, what, what God was doing. First of all, we're, of course, talking about part of the story of creation, right? But we also see here is God establishing what? His created order. His created order, the things that he said that this is how it should be. Man will do this. This is what you're to do. Subdue the earth. All of these things are created for you. And you are to tend it. So what was he doing? Let's go to Genesis 2, 15 through 20. The man has been created on the sixth day. So what was he doing? Genesis 2, 15 through 20. Then the Lord took man and put him into the garden. Remember, he wasn't created in the garden. He was created and then put into the garden. Right? Sometimes we forget that little point. To cultivate it and to keep it, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. 
for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Then the Lord said, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, to all the birds of the sky, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. What we see here, man is set into the garden to work it and to keep it. Right? God is also set now to create woman as a helper, a suitable helper. And man is naming all the creatures. Because why? Excuse me. Man is naming all the creatures, but no helper is found. So where's the picture this creates? Think about all this a minute and consider what is happening. God has created the heavens and the earth. He has created man and woman. Man is instructed to work and care for the garden to keep it. And to keep it from what? There are no aphids or mold. They don't have to worry about drought or flooding or be concerned with any of those sort of things. But the plants need tending. The land needs cultivating. The livestock is to be cared for. Man's dominion is signified by the fact that he names the animals and sorts them. And everything is sorted by its kind, right? In chapter 3, we have a glimpse of God walking through the garden. That's chapter 3, verse 8. That's not on the scriptures up here this morning. But we do have a glimpse of God even walking through the garden in the cool of the day. I just want you to have that kind of imagery there. What, what, what's going on in this place, in this garden? But he's walking through the garden, enjoying his creation. He, sent, he spent time with Adam and Eve, and we can be sure took pleasure in their time there. You know what it's like to be with just the people you truly love and care for, enjoying fellowship and communion and peace, a peace and time and perfection that only the Creator could give. Let me ask you this. Why do you suppose it was so perfect for Adam and Eve? Because they didn't have to really work that hard? Because the plants gave forth their fruit so easily? That the water just came from the ground? That they didn't have to fight with thorns and thistles and all these sorts of things that, well... No trouble, no pain, no disease. That's what made it perfect, right? Sometimes we think about when we go through different troubles, and I, I, we've said it jokingly at times, you know, just, just joking around. It's like, boy, <laughs> I wish we could be back in that garden again. If, if Adam just hadn't messed up, just to have eaten that stupid fruit, we could be there enjoying it without all this other trouble. But be quite frankly, to be quite frank, that is somewhat a man-centered approach to the idea. What we should be more thoughtful about, we should be more thinking about, is what existed in the garden. And that is God's order in perfect harmony with creation. Creation fully in line with God's created order. That's what was happening. That's what made it so perfect. That's what made it. It was provision given by God. 
to Adam and Eve and to all of creation, and all of it was in his created order. It was as he said it ought to be. And how awesome would that be to consider? See, I want to focus on the wrong aspect of some of these things. Or maybe we don't consider all of the aspects we should consider. Maybe that's the better way to put it. Adam found no helper. He was created in God's image. None of the animals were fitting. So God takes flesh and bone from Adam to create Eve. So now what happens? We're kind of bumping along here. We're in Genesis 3, 1 through 5 now. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field, which God, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from the tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the tree of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There's a few things we can say about this. Of course, this is no ordinary snake. In fact, we don't really know what, how to describe it physically or otherwise, how it functioned or, or, or what. And of course, later scripture tells us that we are indeed dealing with Satan. It was Satan himself, some sort of incarnated uh, form of Satan speaking, speaking to Eve. I also would like to point out that consider that at this moment, evil is present in the garden prior to the fall. Before the fall, evil is there. It's right there. But I also want to point out that the serpent did not lie. What he did was he told a partial truth. Catch that? He didn't lie to her. He just ignored certain things, emphasized other things, and told a partial truth. So, a little excerpt, a piece I have here from the Reformation Bible notes that Satan tempts Eve by emphasizing God's prohibition, that is, what he says not to do, and not his provision, in other words, what God has given them, that is, the garden. He's given them this paradise to live in, right? All under his created order. He's given this to them, but he doesn't emphasize that. He ignores that part and just focuses on what God said not to do. He said, He told you not to eat that fruit? Is that what he told you? So he reduces God's command to a question, casting doubt upon God's sincerity and defaming his motives and denying the truthfulness of his threat. The woman gradually yields to Satan's denials and half-truths by disparaging her privileges and adding to the prohibition and minimizing the threat. In other words, he's really not going to die. He just doesn't want you to... No good and evil. That's really what this is about, Eve. The illicit taking of the fruit, that is the illegal taking of the fruit, involves the assertion of human autonomy. The attempt to get, to govern apart from God, God, excuse me, apart from God's word and not to be professed self-sufficient moral judgment. 
So do we not see that in the world today? Of course, throughout all history, really. I mean, uh, this this idea of trying to govern ourselves apart from God's word and God's truth, and guess what? Against God's created order. Things are out of order. So now we're going to go to Genesis 3, 14 through 19, which is what we opened with this morning. Because now what enters after Eve is taking the fruit, she, of course, now takes it to Adam. Adam sees Eve ate it. I think she may have eaten a whole barrel of it. We don't know. But she's eaten some of it. Don't know how long. But he looks at her and says, well, you didn't die, did you? Huh. Maybe there's something to this. Because I've seen it before me. You, you, didn't, you didn't kill over. We, we, we assume if we even touched it. You know, we just, we don't, we did. Curiously, I, even interestingly, they knew what death was. So death wasn't there at the time. So, of course, then Adam also partakes. So then we now in Genesis three fourteen through 19, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is a hatred. And between your seed and her seed, he, he shall bruise you in the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. You should focus on that just, just for a moment. Hear that chord play. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorn and thistle. It shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So in 14 and 15, Satan is judged here and cursed. Now we know that, uh, but that curse is projected onto the order of creation by the subsequent cursing of the serpent. These happen simultaneously because it must crawl on its belly and eat dust. And the hatred between the serpent and the woman's offspring, again, judgment projected to creation, but also a prophecy of the bruising of Jesus' heel and the bruising of Satan's head. Right? This is this is a prophecy being spoke being spoken between Satan and the offspring of the woman, which of course is Jesus, our Lord. The woman, of course, is subject subjected to pain at childbirth and the rule of her husband. And in four and in seventeen through nineteen, cursed is the ground because of you. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth from you. I told you I wanted you to kind of hone in on that part right there, and we'll get there later on. Then we find they're cast out. We'll move on to Genesis 3, 23 through 24. 23 through 24. Excuse me, 22 through 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he must stretch out now he might stretch out stretch out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken, and so he drove him out. And to the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim with flaming swords, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. 
So what we see here through all of this, we see that God has created thing in his perfect order. Everything is working as it ought to. Everything is in line. And now Adam has disobeyed. Is disobeyed, and 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 now they are ashamed themselves. Remember, they 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 sewed the fig leaves together to hide themselves, and the Lord, before He sent them out, actually had to now sacrifice an animal and and make clothes for them out of the skin of those animals. This was the first sacrifice, and He had to clothe them to cover them for their shame and their sin, and He cast them out because they're no longer fit to reside in a place of God's perfect order. Creation. The ground is cursed. Thorns and thistles will now cover the land. All these sort of things are happening. So what do we see here? Is just Adam and Eve cursed? No. All of creation is now cursed. All of creation is now cursed. Let's go to Romans 8, 19 through 25 for a moment. With anxious longing for the creation awaits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also would be set free from its slavery to to corruption, and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we now know, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that has Seen is not hope, for who hopes for what is already sees? In other words, if you're hoping for it because you don't see it, if you see it, you're not hoping for it, you see it. So you're hoping because you haven't seen it yet. But if we hope for what we do not see, what perseverance we wait eagerly for it. With perseverance we wait eagerly for it. So all of creation, you understand, all of God's created order is now corrupt because of this sin, because of what has happened here, all of creation groans and waits for the redemption. It waits for the Savior to come and, and reestablish His kingdom and to reestablish the order, God's order, that existed before the fall. And that's what I want us to look at very closely here this morning. We're also going to look at Isaiah 9, 6-7. through 7. This is a famous scripture. Of course, we read every Christmas. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So now we're even looking at government, the rule of the land, that the coming of our Lord, that what will rest on his shoulders, the government, the rule of the land, the 
establishment of his statutes, of his laws, of God's laws, the perfect laws, the ones that we have we have uh, discarded over time and saying, no, our laws are better. Our laws make more sense. Lord, yours, yours we don't understand. It just, just, just doesn't make any sense to us, Lord. We don't understand these things. And so we've replaced God's law. We've replaced God's uh, God's statutes with man-created ones. And sometimes we interject just enough Scripture or just enough biblical reasoning to justify or whatever, but in, in, at the end of the day, it don't work. Just look out the door. We see it everywhere. Now I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here in time anyway, and we're going now to Luke. And right now we're going to look at, and this this is this is probably a scripture that you would have assumed that I would have started at, <laughs> that I would have started my, this whole sermon with, is with this scripture, because what we're talking about here is what we know as the triumphant entry, right? Where, where, where the Lord is coming into Jerusalem, where he's coming in on the donkey, the unridden donkey, right? We know this Palm Sunday, and they're waving the palms, and they're celebrating his triumphant entry into the city just before Passover, right? So, there's some important things here. <clears throat> and after he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he approached uh, Bethage and Bethany, near the mount what is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of, me, ahead of you. Uh, there as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has yet ever ridden or ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, what are you doing? Or why are you untying it? You shall say the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And they were untying the colt. Its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus. And they knew their, and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory on the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Now, he may have been talking about the stones of the walls of Jerusalem itself. But we see that if, if the saints of God were to be silent and were to not say a word, even creation will cry out. Even parts of creation will cry out. Stones, inanimate objects, will cry out in praise of the Savior, waiting for His return, waiting for His coming. Do you hear that? Do you understand that? That this isn't just about you and me. It's about all of creation. And it's about God, the holy God's created order. 
That is what we are looking toward. We are a part of that. We are one of the many chords through the symphony that's being played about this. We are one of those many chords. And, 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 and we hear those chords and they're great and they're, and they're wonderful, but we can't just hear that one chord. We hear all the other chords. We need to step back and listen and hear the full, the full symphony, all of it. So this, of course, is a good transition. Jesus is riding to Jerusalem on an unridden donkey, just as prophesied. And here we have the starting of events. We will not belabor in much of this, because again, we are listening to a certain chord. We talked about the Passover last week and the Lord's Supper. And there, as you recall, he revealed that one of the disciples there would would betray him. And it's Judas, of course, for 30 pieces of silver. So Judas left the Passover meal with the Lord as Jesus told him to do so, so he could do what he needed to do quickly. And that night we find our Lord and the disciples in the garden. Once again, at a pivotal time, we find him where? In the garden. And Scripture tells us he took the disciples there very often. Spent a lot of time in this particular garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And there we find our Lord praying. Matthew 26, 36 through 46. Then the Lord came to them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and two sons of Zebedee and began to, began, began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not watch with me for one hour. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for the eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and, and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of the sinners. Get up, let us be going. The one who betrays me is at hand. So we find that the Lord prayed to the Father three times, and he asked if this cup could pass before him. He was greatly troubled. He was very sorrowful, distressed, some translations. What was the Father's answer? How did the Father answer him? Silence. At least to the best of our knowledge. I mean, I, I'm not sure why else he would have prayed it three times unless there was just silence. He asked three times. But why else would he come back and ask again and again, seeking out the Father? Consider that not only does he 
I want you to consider this. Because we, we think about often his distress and his, his discomfort and his, his, his uh, sorrowfulness is because of the pain he knows he's about to go through. And certainly that, that, that has to be part of it, right? We are looking at the humanity of Christ at this moment, and, and so he certainly has to consider how difficult this is going to be. He knows what the crucifixion looks and sounds like, right? It's, it's no secret what, what happens in this, in this process. But not only does he weigh the pain and physical difficulties, but also the taking of sin. Consider that sin is no minor matter. I mean, we have already read and see in Scripture that through one man, Adam, through one man, Adam, sin entered the world. As Romans 5 would state. And man and all creation is cursed. Romans 5 and Romans 8 tells us these things. So consider the sin of man and the separation of man from God. This cannot be cannot be missed. We think about the anguish that Christ was going through at this moment, knowing what he was walking into, knowing what he was going to go and have to do. Not only the pain and anguish, but also the bearing of sin, the separation. He knew these things were coming. We consider that Adam and Eve cast from the garden. They were sin, no longer fit to abide there. And uh, and think about the, when the Ten Commandments were given. Where were where were uh, the Israelites at that point? In that moment, it was at the Mount Sinai. <clears throat> now there, he commanded that the people not come near him. Remember, the the mountain was covered in smoke, and because God came down as as like fire, right? And he commanded. He said um, he commanded that people not come near him. If they even touch the base of the mountain, he would kill them. This was after consecrating themselves for two days and washing their garments and to be ready for that third day. Even after all of this preparation, they were not even allowed to touch the edge of the mountain. Uh, uh, um, excuse me, Exodus nineteen twelve. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. They still had the stench of Egypt on them, sin and unrighteousness that without a covering could not stand the presence of a holy. God in His glory. So they weren't even allowed to touch the mountain that He was on. And in the tabernacle, think about the tabernacle that, that, was, uh, that was moved and even the one that was set permanently in Jerusalem. In the tabernacle, there was a veil that separated the Holy of Holies, this is where the Ark of the Covenant would sit, from the rest of the tabernacle. And only the priest was allowed to enter in God's presence when God's presence was there and that was with the Ark of the Covenant. Even then, they were only allowed to, to enter after painstaking consecration, much time in preparation, and only with the blood of the sacrifice were they allowed to even enter. That's how big of a deal sin. And here Christ is having to contemplate this is what He's having to take on Himself. So the knowledge to have sin of man hung on him was something to be lamented. But as Jesus prayed in the garden, the Lord was silent. And the qualifier that Jesus gave, not as I will, but as you will. At this monumental moment and defining moment, Jesus submitted to the will of the Father. 
He submitted obedience to the Father's will. In this moment, he cited no other reason and no other factor. He simply said, if, this, if there's anything for this not to happen, if, if, if I could let this cup pass for me, but your will and not mine. Now again, we all, I'm not going to belabor again many of the scriptures of all these events. We're going to kind of work our way through some of these things to get where we need to go today. So Judas came with the soldiers to seize the Lord as prophesied in the accounts of John 18. Uh, when the crowd came to seize the Lord, ask, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he answered, I am he. The soldiers fell down. Is that very moment the Lord had not yet released himself. Now, we should remember in our studies last week of the Passover, right? Where do we know that phrase from? I am. I am that I am. The burning bush. Remember when Moses was, was asking the Lord, when I go in to, to talk to the Pharaoh and all these other folks, and, and, and I go to talk to them, and who do I tell them sent me? Who, what did the Lord say? I am. So in this moment, when Jesus says, I am he, the I am, the soldiers fell. In this very moment, the Lord had not released himself, so he noted that they had tried to seize him many times in the synagogues. I've always been out preaching openly all these other times, and you had all these opportunities to get me, and you couldn't do it. And that's because he was implying he never allowed them to do so. So he asked again, again, who they sought, and they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, well, I've already told you. That's who I am. He said, now let my, let my disciples go. He commanded disciples to go. And he went with the mob willingly. I also would like to point out that in Scripture, do you remember, I didn't, I didn't put these notes in here. I didn't bring up the Scriptures for here. But remember, in the midst of this, what, what does Peter do? You might remember? Pulls out a sword and cuts off the ear of one of the priest helpers. Cuts off his ear, doesn't he? What did the Lord say? First of all, he tells me to put a sword away. I need to, this is for me to fulfill. I have to go do this. This is something that's a requirement of me. This is something we're going to go do. So put your sword away. But he also said, do you not understand that if I asked for it right now, the Lord would send 12 legions of angels after me? All I have to do was say the word. This emphasizes his willingness to do it, that he was only held captive by his obedience. That was the only thing holding him captive to these soldiers was his obedience to the Father. Because he says, all I have to do is call the angels and they'll come right now. And all of this would go away. But of course... We would have a problem, wouldn't we? So we know many events happen after this. The, the name of few. Peter denies the Lord three times. Jesus is questioned by the high priest where he makes it clear he has done nothing in secret. Everything is what open in the world. Jesus is brought before Pilate. Note that he had already stated in the garden that if he asked the Lord to send 12 legions of angels to his side. And again, as I already said, so you see Jesus is only held captive by his own obedience. 
So with the betrayal of Jesus, the trial is followed. He is sentenced to crucifixion. And we know that he was savagely beaten, brutally beaten, whipped, as it is with Roman custom of this, this particular process. He was openly mocked and spat at. He was nailed to a cross through his wrist and his feet. There our Savior hangs on a cross between two thieves. And all the while the disciples scattered while Mary watched along with John the Beloved. Note that from this time, from this moment, from the time that Jesus had eaten the Passover meal with his disciples, this was all in one day. This was all within a day, within a Jewish day. Because day began starts with sundown. So they began the Passover meal the evening before. And here we are the next day before evening. So it's still within the same day. Sometimes we lose sight of that. We think of all these things happening. This might be, we lose track of that. Maybe days, it may be whatever. Uh, but no, it's all within a day. Could you imagine what the disciples were thinking? How quickly this all progressed. Here they are eating supper with their with their Lord, praising and singing hymns with Him. And by the next day, He's hanging on a cross. You also know about the side being pierced as the prophecies decreed and the sign hung over His head, declaring Him King of the Jews. And the soldiers casting lots for His clothes and the offering of sour wine for His thirst. In the midst of all of this, our Lord cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Simple phrase. It was some wonder, is he trying to call Elijah? Is, he, is, he, is Elijah coming to save him? What, what, what's going on here? I'm sure his disciples would know. The Pharisees would certainly know. Um, that he was referring to, of course, Psalm 22, Psalm of David. We're going to read that psalm right now because it is very key to all of this to understand by that simple phrase what all he was saying. So Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry day, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy. You who are enthroned upon the praise of Israel, and you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered, and you they trusted and, are, and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip, they wagged the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, because he delights in him. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth, and have seen my God from my mother's womb. But not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. 
They open wide their mouths at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melting within me. My strength is dried up like a postured, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers have, has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all of my bones. They look. They stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothes, they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen you answer me. I will tell of your name to my brethren. To the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who hear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in all of him. All who, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. For you come, from you comes my praise in the greatest assembly. I shall pay my vows. Before those who fear me, who fear him, the afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let the hearts be, let the hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him, even he, he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him, and all be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to all people who will be born, that he has performed it. And with this, he lets out one more cry. It is finished. And as recorded in Matthew 27, 50, he yielded his spirit to the Lord. You can only imagine what the onlookers, particularly the disciples, Mary and John, that moment must have been like. But Matthew 27, right after he says it is finished, we're going to look at 51 through 56. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. The point we tend to forget for some reason. 
I know I have in the past. But dead people walked out of their tombs in this moment. The veil was ripped. The ground shook. Rocks were split. They'll come. So <clears throat> the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now they didn't appear to anyone until after the resurrection. <clears throat> now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. Along them was Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So what do we see here in this moment? Of course, the veil is ripped, right? The earth shakes, the rocks are split, the tomb is opened up. So what does all this mean for us? What does this mean for creation? Well, for us, the separation between man and God, man and God is torn. Reconciliation is now made possible by the death of our Savior. And death has no power, not only the, the pending resurrection of the Lord, but the resurrection of the saints. All the elect of God, the earth responds to the power with earthquakes and rocks splitting. There is a, a reverberation through creation of this happening. In, in this moment, we, we see the veil being ripped, this, this veil that would separate us. That, that There are tales that, that, that priests would have to uh, do things like put bells on their garments and tie a rope to their foot. So that if they went in and they didn't hear the bell clinging anymore inside the Holy of Holies, they could use the rope to pull them back out. Now, <laughs> I, I, I can see that there is some folks who say that actually never was done that way. But it still emphasizes the separation between man and a holy God has now been removed. Do we understand? Do we really, really understand what this means for us? And in John 20, we read from the tomb being found empty. And the rock had been rolled away. Mary discovered the empty tomb and ran to get Peter and John. And they ran to see the tomb. And there they find the linens and other accounts to tell and other accounts to tell the angels that they, excuse me, and other accounts that they, they tell the angels when they went and told, that told them what had happened, but still did not seem to fully understand. So, as Trey read earlier, the angels there in their dazzling clothes explaining to them what has happened as they come into the empty tomb. And they hear it, but they don't quite hear it, it seems. And I don't hold that against them. I mean, I'm sure that any of us would still be quite confused. Does it quite make sense? The Lord has spent all this time explaining these things and showing us in Scripture, but it just it still just didn't quite click yet. So this in verse 11 of chapter 
20 of John, we read, Mary Magdalene is the first to see the resurrected Jesus. And she mistakes him as a gardener. As we've already previously discussed. I want us to scroll back a minute because, again, this is that core, this theme we see through Scripture, this particular thread that I want us to focus on just for this particular one for a moment. Because we focus on the resurrection, we focus on 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 the uh, the price paid at the cross for us, which is all very true. But I want us to see where we were at the beginning of this. Where were we? Where did we start this journey from? The garden. This this creation where God's created order is in perfect harmony, and all of these things in this garden, man was 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 destined. The first Adam, the Adam that that, that, that sin entered the world through, is there, and he is set to take care of this garden. He is there to cultivate the ground. He is there to keep the garden. And then we read in in uh, later on, just before he, Jesus is whisked off, whisked off to his death, and to do what he must do, where do we find him? In the garden, praying. That's where he spent time. And it says that he spent a lot of time there with his, with his disciples. And now that we have read about and talked about the, the, the death and now the, the mighty resurrection, the raising of our Savior. And when Mary, who is the first to see him, who does she think he is? But a gardener. Why do you think that? I mean, do you think he was wearing a pair of coveralls, the straw hat, got a piece of straw on the side of his mouth, you know, got on the big rubber boots? I, I suspect not. <laughs> but he's doing something. He's tending to a garden. He's tending to some plants. He's doing something that would that would be within his character. But she looked at that and thought, of course, she didn't recognize him because he's in his glorified form. He's kind of still hidden himself from her in that way. But by whatever it is he's doing, she thinks he's a gardener. And again, what I want to, <laughs> what I'm trying to emphasize here is the importance of all of creation to our Lord. What He created in its order as it ought to be and as it will be. But again, of course, on this Sunday we cannot so casually breeze by the resurrection, can we? to understand what it means in all of this. So our final scripture this morning is 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 28. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel of which I have preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast the word which I prepared, Preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I believed, so excuse me, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received from Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, 
most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so they preach and so you believe. And I want to read all of that because I want you to emphasize you remember who Paul was, that is the persecutor of the church. So what hope did he have? And here, here it is. Whether then it is I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because he testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise. If in fact the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. So we are to say now, the power and importance of the resurrection is undeniable. Without it, we have no hope. We have no gospel. We ourselves have no resurrection to share in. We have, we will be left desolate without the resurrection. What should we hear and see from the time we have spent this Easter morning? What I hope you will see this morning is the particular time spent in corporate worship and hearing of the word. With the fall in Genesis 3, we can see it not only the separation of man from God, but also the disruption and corruption of God's created order. In the garden, we can see the created order in place, in full harmony, much like the perfect symphony. Through Adam's sin, through Adam, sin entered the world, as stated in Romans 5, thus corrupting the created order. We can see that corruption Clearly today in our culture, and we see it throughout the course of history. So while it's good and even right to speak of salvation that comes to the individual through the power of the gospel, but we should not limit the gospel or the power of the resurrection to only that. We would do well to hear the entirety of the symphony in every instrument, in every chord, in every note. With the death and resurrection of the Son, the elect are indeed reconciled to God, but also we step into the establishment of His kingdom, the restoration of creation and God's created order, the establishment of His laws and His statutes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, Lord, we beseech you, Lord. We praise you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, this time we can hear your word and hear your truth, dear Father. And Lord, as we move forward now into a time of communion, dear Lord, to celebrate the supper, 
Lord, I ask that you would bless your people, Lord, and bless this time, Father. Lord, we praise you, Lord, and we are thankful for the gift, Lord, for the death of our Savior, Lord, but Lord, for his resurrection, as we too may share in that resurrection. Let us not forget it, Father. Let's not forget that impact not only has on us, Lord, but upon all of creation, Lord, that it resonates through all of the universe, even, Father. The new heaven and the new earth, there, Father. Lord, pray that we have glorified you, Lord, and the people have been edified there, Lord. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.